So we, as we know, are in week three of our Advent series, which we called Like Trees in Winter. And the original image that I was painting was one of these trees that are, that are barren, that are empty, that are a bit sad looking gray. And so far they have been up until yesterday. And now they're covered in this beautiful snow. I mean, it's hard to drive or walk around Iowa City and not be um, just captured by the beauty of the snow resting on the tangled leaves of these trees. And it's perfect because it happened right before week three, which is joy week. So even on these trees in winter, we get this image of beauty and this image of, um, you know, like Jesus promises, washed uh, white as snow. Um, But what we're hoping, what we're seeking to learn during this Advent is how to be people who can wait well, who can wait for new life to be formed in us when many of the external circumstances seem lifeless, drab or dull. Uh, And this kind of waiting, of course, is impossible without hope and not even hope alone, but hope that is coupled with love and infused with joy. I'd love to talk about Jürgen Moltmann for a little bit. Jürgen Moltmann is perhaps one of the most famous living theologians in the world today. He was born in 1926 in Hamburg in Germany, um, which means he's, what, 94? But he's, he's still kicking uh, he says that his upbringing was, upbringing was was thoroughly secular, and his hero at the time growing up was Albert Einstein. So he enrolled, was about to enroll anyways, in university to study mathematics. And right as he was enrolling, he was drafted um, into the German military, um, into the German army in 1944. And so as he's drafted, he brings with him um, two, two books, two collections anyways, the poems of Goethe and the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche. And those are supposed to be his sort of hopeful literature to get him through wartime. Well, he was ordered to what was called, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but the Clever Reichswald, which is a German forest. And it was this big forest that was on the front lines of the war. And Jürgen Moltmann himself, he surrendered in 1945. Um, It was in the dark, and it was when the first British soldier soldier approached him. He said, okay, I surrender. So he gets, of course, captured and confined as a prisoner of war for the next three years. And he's moved sort of camp to camp. Well, the first camp that they took him to was in Belgium. And there wasn't much that they had these prisoners of war do there. Essentially, stay in your little hut, your little cell. And Moltmann says that him and his fellow prisoners, they were tormented by what he calls memories and gnawing thoughts of what they had done or what their country had done. And their captives had nailed up uh, photographs in their huts photographs of the different concentration camps. 
So they would be forced to look at the atrocities that had been done in the name of their country. Sort of saying, hey, this is what the German military has done, which means you as a soldier have contributed to it. And now you have nothing to do but stare at the heinous crimes you have committed. Molman said he lost any sense of hope. I don't know who wouldn't. He often wished that he would have died with his comrades rather than being subjected to live with what his nation had done. He, he was hopeless. And there, as a prisoner of war, in utter despair, Moltmann is given a copy of the New Testament and the Psalms by an American chaplain who had visited that prisoner of war camp. So he begins reading the Gospels, and he's confronted with this God who suffers in Christ on the cross. Yet, he also says that he feels the presence of Jesus and the reality of the resurrection, the way the story ends, it, it infuses his life with hope. He sees how in Jesus, suffering and hope are not mutually exclusive. And when telling about that moment, he says, I didn't find Christ, but he found me. Eventually, he gets released. He returns home to a Germany that's in ruins. And he decides to study theology. In 1967, he joins the faculty of the University of Tübingen as professor of systemic, systematic theology. And he's actually still on, on uh, the faculty as professor emeritus to this day. He becomes known all over the world, at least to people studying theology, um, for his book, Theology of Hope. And one of the more simple lines he says of hope is this. Hope is anticipated joy. Anxiety is anticipated terror. And he knows both of them well. Hope is anticipated joy. Anxiety is anticipated terror. So is your life marked by hope or by anxiety? If we want to have any kind of truly Christian hope, hope that can not only sustain suffering, but give meaning to it, it must be infused with joy. Two weeks ago, we explored the story directly preceding the one we read today about Zechariah and Elizabeth, an old uh, priestly couple who longed and hoped for two things. One more grand, a cosmic, not quite cosmic, but grand national at least, a hope for a Messiah for Israel. And then the second hope for a child of their own. And when Zechariah is in the temple, nearest to the Holy of Holies, the centerpiece, an angel speaks a promise that Elizabeth will conceive and that their son, who they are to call John, is going to be a forerunner to the Messiah. 
So both of their hopes are answered in one glorious way. And Zechariah, the story says, sort of questions the angel, maybe doubts the angel, maybe just wants a little more information. And the angel makes Zechariah leave and remain in silence. And then Elizabeth does conceive, and for the first five months, she remains hidden. So we learned that hope grows in silence and hiddenness. And then last week, we read in the Gospel of Matthew of an angel coming to Joseph in a dream. Joseph is told that the child in Mary is from the Holy Spirit, and Joseph becomes a sort of image of love for us, of a God who is with us in the waiting, of that famous Christian word that we sing and say and love to hear, Emmanuel. While God may at times seem hidden or silent, he is never absent. Hiddenness is not absence. And then today we went back to Luke and read a long text. So let's summarize that one again. An angel, Gabriel is the angel's name. The same named angel that shows up to Zechariah comes to Mary and greets her, saying she is highly favored and that the Lord is with her. Mary is greatly troubled and she takes time to discern what kind of greeting is this? This is Mary's first response to the inbreaking of God, discernment. The angel says, do not be afraid, and reiterates that Mary is favored by God. Every time in all these stories that the angel speaks, he says this, do not be afraid, to Zechariah, to Joseph, to Mary, do not be afraid. Fear separates and love brings together. And this messenger of God wants to emphasize connection, not separation. The nearness and favor and love of God, not shame or fear or judgment. Then the angel continues to tell of what's going to happen. She'll conceive and bear a son who will be the savior of the world. And then Mary's second response to the angel is, how can this be since I am a virgin? It sounds very similar to Zechariah sort of questioning the angel. Um, but Mary's is sort of told to us in a more innocent way um, than Zechariah's. So the angel simply responds. The angel says that it will be by the Holy Spirit and the power of the Most High. And that her cousin Elizabeth the old, barren one, well, she is also pregnant as well. So clearly God can do the impossible. And then Mary's third response is her perhaps most famous. It's her let it be. Or in the long form, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It's her yes to what God wants to birth in her. In her yes, she responds by traveling to go see her cousin Elizabeth. When Mary gets there, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leaps for joy in utero. And then Mary's fourth response is her song of joy. 
it only seems appropriate for Mary to respond in poetry and melody. It seems to be the only proper medium. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary, I want to say, shows us um, three ways to cultivate joy. She gives us a posture, a practice, and a promise. Yes, no, and silence. In our agency, there's a yes that must be made to joy. We get to consent. It's a yes that helps us cultivate a posture of humility. And our text today is filled with humility. It's all over it. One way to see it is to contrast the way that the angel shows up to Mary with the way the angel shows up to Zechariah. So the story right preceding us, same angel, Gabriel. The first announcement takes place in the temple. This is the center of Israelite culture. Right? And then this one takes place in an obscure Galilean village, much to the north of the capital. Again, Zechariah's encounter with Gabriel takes place at the center of the Jewish world, the holy place, only a veiled doorway from the presence of God's glory. But Gabriel travels to Mary far away from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Again, to Nazareth in Galilee. Insignificant, despised, unclean. The announcement being in Nazareth, already from its beginning, shows that Mary comes to us from humble agrarian roots. Galilee was not a respected region. It was hardly the expected locale for a messenger sent from God. And then this connection of joy and humility is made even more obvious when Mary travels to see Elizabeth. In Luke 1, 43 and 44, it says, And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. This is Elizabeth speaking. There's this sense in her of privilege and favor at being used by God. Elizabeth knows that God doesn't owe her such a central role. Yet she's amazed at God's involvement in her life. In her asking, why me? She understands that she is but a humble beneficiary of God's grace. The God who sits in heaven has shown concern to his lowly servant. In the midst of all he does in creation, she has been noticed. And so she will testify to God's care for her just as he cares for others. Then there's the humility of Mary's response to the angel Gabriel. She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I mean, is there any lower place to put oneself? 
And again, in her song, she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And then later in the song, she sings, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So to say yes to joy, to say let it be, like Mary, is to develop a posture of humility. Humility is when we receive all of life as a gift. All that we have, all that we are, every skill, every relationship, every taste and sound and sight, and even every breath, all given. Nothing is deserved. Nothing is earned. We have no inalienable rights just by being born a human. All is given. Humility is a posture that receives everything as gift. And therefore, everything is capable of wonder, like gifts are, and an occasion for joy. Now, when we have the posture of pride, we can only receive joy when we have something that others do not. Something that uh, differentiates us as better, as worthy, as unique. And this prideful posture causes us then to lose any ability to truly receive anything as a gift. Because our identity is built upon what we deserve. If something is deserved, it's not a gift. The only joy we can receive in pride, which is hardly joy at all, is again when we receive something rare, something that no one else has. It's only valuable if I have it and you don't. Or joy loses its meaning as a gift we say yes to, and it becomes more about experiences of fun or the emotion of happiness. Now, I love fun and happiness, okay? I am for fun and for happiness. I would vote yes to both. But fun is problematic only because it must be repeated again and again and again. By its very nature, it's temporal and fleeting. And happiness is is great as well, but it's quite fickle. And it's often dependent upon my emotional state and my circumstances. Fun and happiness become something that I can pursue. Right? There's something, therefore, that takes my energy and time and resources. And when I run out of those, I'm at a loss of agency. If I'm low on time or energy or money, I can feel trapped and helpless. To pursue these things actually takes away my freedom and my agency. Joy, on the other hand, always invites our agency as people who can, in humility, say yes to all that God gives. The humble can receive even the mundane as gifts because their identity isn't based in what they deserve. Their identity is is hidden with Christ in God. 
The humble know that they are held in existence by the love of God. They are not self-made. They are God-made. They know they were once nihilo, nothingness, that God has chosen to make into something. They themselves are a gift, as is all of life. And every gift, again, of course, is an occasion for joy. But this kind of humility, of course, requires deep trust in who God is. It requires us in our freedom, in our agency, to consent to God, to say, let it be. Yes. To say yes, then, is to let go of the life you wish you had. To receive the life you actually have as a gift. I don't know if a lot of us are willing to do that. The humility of joy is the yes to the givenness of all as gift from God. Yes. But there's also a no that must be uttered in defense of joy. That leads to my second uh, point here. In our agency, there's a no that must be practiced to cultivate joy. There's a no that must be uttered in defiance to despair and also in resistance to any sort of counterfeit joys. <clears throat> I'm not a huge U2 fan, but in, in a few years ago, 2017, they put out this new album and they were fully aware and upset about the political climate in the U.S., but also in the U.K., much closer to home for them. Even still, they released a song on that album <clears throat> that was highly influenced by this sort of Motown joy, uh, this almost simplistic joy. And in a New York Times article, Bono says, you're putting out a song about your girlfriend when the world is on fire? He sort of asks of himself, anticipating one reaction. And then he says, yes. Joy is an act of defiance. Joy is an act of defiance to despair. I think we need to hear this even now. So based on societal norms of when our story takes place, Mary could have been as young as 12. Likely she was as old as 20. That's kind of like the peak that she could have been. And then there's another uh, sort of cultural side note that stands behind the text. And it can be summarized by Mary's dilemma and the old expression, good girls don't. In ancient culture, virginity was an honored state, a badge of self-control and moral faithfulness. Well, if Mary says yes to this whole thing with Gabriel... She'd, of course, appear to many to have conceived a child out of wedlock. Her explanation of divine uh, conception might be a bit hard for most people to swallow. So there's definitely a risk involved in Mary's yes to Gabriel. She could lose her fiancé, Joseph. She could also be deemed an adulteress and publicly shamed or perhaps even worse. Mary had this glorious promise given to her, right? 
how she gets to play a part in the redemption of all Israel and the world. I mean, what a joy. But what if she got found? What if she got found out by like a fundamentalist Jewish sect who would still believe in the practice of stoning adulteresses in this time? What if they found her? What if they saw that she was pregnant and unwed? What if the risk was too great and Mary said, no, thank you to Gabriel? I wonder if you ever had a dream or a a vision or hope to influence the world for good. But then when you counted the cost, when you thought what it would actually require of you, when you realized the risks involved, you changed your mind. Those moments right there are recipes for despair because you've sort of, you've seen the goodness possible and you haven't pursued it. That's the sort of hope deferred that makes the heart grow sick. It breeds regret and resentment, but certainly not joy. Mary says a defiant and resilient no to the despair of compromise. She gives her yes to the voice of God and her no to all other voices that would seek to take his promise from her. When Mary travels to see Zechariah and Elizabeth, this is a long, risky journey. This takes place in the hill country of Judea. It's likely 80 to 100 miles that she is traveling as a young woman on her own, which, by the way, is not allowed in that time. But she does it. Why? Because Gabriel has said, hey, your cousin, by the way, is almost six months pregnant. And Mary says, I'm saying no to being scared by the risks and I'm pursuing this promise that God has given to me. I need to see this thing with my own eyes. I need to see Elizabeth's belly because if God can make old Elizabeth pregnant, then there's probably some truth to this promise he's given to me. In the meeting, it demonstrates Mary's obedience since it reflects her desire to observe this sign that the angel told her about. She is defiant to pursue joy, even amidst adversity. So there's the practice of saying no to despair in all its forms, but there's also the practice of saying no towards counterfeit joys. In Mary's song, she has this great line. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Those who might normally have the most access to joy as we might judge it. God has sent away empty. There's um, an African-American theologian who is currently at at Yale Divinity School. His name is Willie Jennings. And he says, similar to Bono, joy is an act of resistance against despair and all its forces. Joy in that regard is a work that can become a state that can become a way of life. And Jennings, in this interview, he's asked, you know, why is it that we often see this deeper sense of joy amongst the world's poor, amongst the suffering, amongst the oppressed? 
in the lower classes. He says that for those who are just trying to survive, there's not as much energy left to complain, for one. And in those environments, the work of joy is taken more seriously because it's needed to get through the day. In successful climates, he says, like America and much of the West, joy making is outsourced to advertisers and companies. Commercials tell us what we need to be happy. In more impoverished places, it's the people's work in creating joy. That means most of us then, who are here, who are, who are watching this, are being sold products and ideas that make promises to give us joy. Sometimes they're obvious, right? You need a bigger TV. If you could just watch the game on something that was 70 inches, the amount of joy you'd have when they get the final touchdown would be unmatchable. And we can, you know, make jokes about those, or maybe you need a more luxurious car. I mean, sure, the winter's rough, but if you had seat warmers and plush leather seats, you might have a more joyful driving experience. But oftentimes I think they're even more subtle, right? Like buying organic vegetables or perhaps using that natural skincare regimen. Because you see, now the promise for joy has been attached not just to a uh, consumer instinct, but to an ethical one as well. And so it kind of sneaks in that, oh yeah, if I did that, then I would really get the joy. And of course, marketers know that. And I'm not saying that you should say no to buying organic vegetables or healthier skincare or things like that. When I'm able to, I try and buy that way as well. But we do have to say no to the promise being made that if we buy the right things, our lives will possess more joy because that is a lie and people are very good at selling it. Finally, there's a place where both the yes and the no must concede to silence. So we take on the posture of humility, a yes to a life that is given as gift. And we practice defiance, a no to despair and all consumer counterfeit joy. And finally, we wait silent in the promise of God who is given. I was struck by this beautiful verse in what Josh was singing this morning. <clears throat> how silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming. But in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. So we actually are going to end with Mary's first response to Gabriel. Mary considers or is greatly troubled by the angel's greeting. 
So she takes a moment to sort of think and contemplate what God might be doing. It says she discerns what this greeting might mean. She notices and pays attention to what God is doing. And this is different than Zechariah's response to the angel Gabriel. They'll both appear similar. Zechariah says, how can I be certain of this? And Zechariah wants uh, certainty. And so what? He's forced into silence by the angel. Certainty ends contemplation. It ends waiting. It ends our need of God. Mystery, on the other hand, invites it. It draws us deeper in. And it's important to note here that when I say mystery, I'm not talking about the lack of knowing or something that cannot be known at all. I'm talking about the endless expanse of knowing, right? God isn't unknowable. He's infinitely knowable, which means that our finite minds can never fully and completely contain God who is infinite. That's mystery. That's contemplation. Certainty is the end of contemplation of God and thus the end of joy. Fred um, recited a bit of this in his prayer. Paul says in Philippians 4, 4 through 9, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and may the God of peace be with you. When Paul gives us this seemingly impossible exhortation to rejoice always, he gives us an idea of the mind's role in finding joy. He says to think about all that is good and true and beautiful. Think about it. Meditate on it, you might say. Contemplate it. And he promises this. He says the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. Mary contemplates the greeting from Gabriel. She discerns between the yes and no of joy unsure which to utter first. She begins in silence. She begins with waiting. She practices saying no 
to every temptation and fear and lie that would rob her of joy. And she takes on the posture of humility, uttering yes to the gift of God. The gift of God, not just for her, but for the redemption of the world. So friends, this morning, be encouraged that God is working in the waiting. That sometimes it's silently that the gift is given. The promise for you this morning is that the peace of God is present with you in Christ. And God may seem hidden, but he is not absent. He is inviting you to discern where to say yes and where to say no. That joy may truly be cultivated in your life. May we become the kind of people who are humble, defiant, and discerning that joy may be ours. Let me close with Paul's words from Romans chapter 8. This is from the message translation. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us, but the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us the grace to wait well. Lord, would you fill our waiting with hope? Would you fill our waiting with love? Would you fill our waiting with joy, Lord? Father, we want to be the kind of people who possess a true humbleness of heart before you. We want to be the kind of people who see everything as a gift and we rejoice over it. We want to be the kind of people, Lord, who have the courage to be defiant to the joy that is not joy, to the joy that is trying to be sold to us, being pandered to us, Lord. And Lord, we also need the courage to say no to the despair that so easily creeps in on us. Finally, Lord, we pray for your spirit to discern in us the yeses and the noes. And we pray for the patience to sit silently, silently as that discernment takes place. In Jesus' name, amen.